Yes, it is Lost in Science once more on your radio device. My name is Chris, and this week I am going to be talking about new discoveries regarding everyone's favourite hominin, the hobbit. <laughs> it is Homo my, floresiensis. It is my favourite hominin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there's some new research showing that maybe it did not uh, last as long as we thought it had originally. That's quite interesting for various reasons, but we'll get into that. Claire, what have you got? Um, I am going to be talking about a new... Um, some new technology that's just come out in the automotive world. It is the new Tesla car. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and it's weird because I I don't really like cars, but something about but it's this electric, one so it's good. has just fired me up a little bit. Great. Yep. You may have noticed, other people listening, that you may have noticed a voice there that, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yes. Welcome back, Manisha. Yay. Hi. Yay. I'm back. Manisha's been off in the countryside doing science. Yes, um, science. Much sciencing, as all sciencers do. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, it's the only excuse we would allow is that she comes back with stories of science. Very special thing today. We're going to interview Manisha about science. What will she tell us, I wonder? Um, Manisha? We could ask her that now. <laughs> we could ask her that now or we could ask her it later during the actual interview. Yeah, I think I'll hold off a little. On with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and I am talking about everybody's favourite hominin, the the hobbit, Homo floresiensis. Mm. Oh, I love it. Yes. Um, not, I should say, this is not the um, the Tolkien hobbit, the um, that is a uh, fan of potatoes. Fry them, boil them, stick them in a stew. Thank Potatoes. You. Thank you, Claire. Mr. For, <laughs> thank you, Claire, for our Lord of the Rings quote. <laughs> uh, no, I'm talking instead about the yeah the extinct hominin found on the Indonesian island of Flores, a bit closer to home. Um, and yeah, it's a discovered in 2003 and believed to be a new species. Mm-hmm. Cool. Now, I did use the word hominin there, which you're probably wondering what that is. I yeah, because. I would know them as hominids, not this hominin. Hominin. Well, technically they are hominins. I think they come under hominids as well. But I'll try and get through. I, I get this confused. This is confusing. Uh, it is taxonomy. Just, just, just break it down. Okay. For us, okay. So we start off at um, the the family hominidae. Hominidae. Sorry, which is all the hominids, and that is your great apes. Okay. So it's a it's a taxonomic group called a family, and because all your great apes and 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 humans. Yes, and yes. humans. So and all it includes, of our yeah, includes your humans. It includes uh, your your chimpanzees and your bonobos. Oh yeah, yeah don't forget Love the bonobos. Includes gorillas. Yep, mm-hmm. um, and includes um, orangutans, which are in the genus Pongo. Oh really? Yeah. Huh, that's a fun fact. Yep. So then we below the the family Hominidae, we have the the subfamily Homininae. Which um, basically we just lose the orangutans. So we have All the right. it's the other ones. It's so the, the gorillas and humans. The gorillas, humans, and chimps, and chimps essentially. Right. Um, and bonobos. Bonobos are in the same. They're they're related to the chimps. They're closely related to the chimps. Cool. When we get to the the um, then belief that there's actually there's a couple of other sort of little groupings depending how deep you want to go. There's a hominini, which is a tribe. Um, we lose the gorillas. They're not included in that, but that's. Um, in that is the the humans and the chimps essentially. Hominini. Um, hominini. Yep. Um, the chimps are in the genus Pan, uh, whereas humans are in the genus um, Homo, of course. Um, within Hominini, there is a subtribe. If you really want to be specific, which is Hominina, um, 
and that includes um, the the Homo species. Um, no, it doesn't that's basically all it is in there? Is the 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 Yahomo species? The um above the that was the in the Hominini, There was another one which is the Australopithecina. Oh, yeah, hey. which is a which is an extinct sort of group grouping, yeah. and that's all your um your very um archaic. Neanderthals. Yeah, no, Neanderthals are Homos. Oh, yeah. are they? Yeah, Australopithecus so, afarensis. I think. It's yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. yeah, what we're interested in is the um is the 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 we're basically just looking at the genus Homo essentially here, yeah. which is like you had your Homo erectus, you had Homo neanderthal, uh, whatever it was called, you had whatever the Denisovans were, and you had this other what is believed to be another species, which is Homo floresiensis, which is kind of like when it was discovered, it was very different. It was discovered outside of Africa. Basically, the other species arose in Africa. This has only been oh, found cool. outside of Africa, mm. um, and it was quite different to the other the other species. And it's only been found on this one particular island. There's been controversy about it. Some people believe that it's not actually a separate species, that it's just, say, humans with various developmental disorders, oh, like yeah. just basically small human skeletons. And part of the reason for this is because of the age of the fossils. So they were found in a cave on the island of Flores. This cave is a limestone cave called Liangbua. Uh, and they found a few skeletons. A complete one is called LB1 for Liangbua 1. Uh, and it was found together with a whole lot of other sort of extinct uh, creatures as well, including pygmy elephants. Oh, was cool. it was everything pygmy on this island? Often, like, yeah. Sorry. Off, sorry, yeah. No, go on. Like I was gonna say, often on islands you get a kind of a dwarfism due to being on yeah. an island. Yeah. Uh, and so this um, this elephant, it was actually it was not a modern type of elephant. It was a stegodon, which is an extinct sort of ancestor of elephants and i don't know how big this one was it's somewhere between i couldn't find a reference to how big this one's actually was, somewhere between 300 and 800 kilos Jeez. in in size which is so when about compared a to, cow yeah when you compare to a say an asian elephant which is 2700 kilos wow. roughly wow according so to the internet were these were the hominins like aged at the same age as the pygmy well, elephant does that make sense yeah, well, this is this is the thing. So they to age it, they've been mostly looking at the sediments um, oh, yeah. that they that they're buried in, and so they found a huge range in ages, and they found them basically some as young as twelve thousand years ago, which was very surprising. So it basically very implied recent. that yeah, very recent implied that they were living alongside modern humans. And this is one of the big surprising things about this discovery. And then people started drawing on kind of conclusions, saying, "Oh, this is the origin of legends of you know little people and fairies mm. and this kind of stuff." Um, travels and all of that. Yeah, well, they're a bit smaller, I think, the Lilliputians. Mm. But yeah, on you know kind of elves and but dwarves and gnomes thing, and that yeah. sort of things. Um, so it was kind of a you know, a lot of people sort of reaching that sort of conclusions. But it was just a, a curious thing, you know, why was this one particular small species and how do they survive so long with um with humans around um now they've gone back to the cave called they got back a few times and they've done um a lot more analysis and what they found is that the the cave is not pristine that there's been some erosion into the cave and now they believe that the younger sediments uh, that they they got were all from um, yet yeah, some erosion on the north side of this cave. And when they do a proper analysis of the stratigraphy, the the different layers of the sediments that have applied down, yeah. they found that all the, the actual fossils are in the lower layers of the sediment and are somewhere between, looking at my notes, um, uh, 
about a hundred thousand and fifty thousand years ago, basically, is wow. is what they are. So this is kind of much more in line with what we know about, I guess, the arrival of humans in in the region. In fact, it's suspiciously similar to the arrival of humans in the region. In that, um, you know, we believe that Homo sapiens arrived in Australia, say around fifty thousand years ago, and um, they would have been going through Indonesia on their way to Australia, and. You often find this pattern throughout the world that species seem to go extinct after Homo sapiens arrive. And that does seem to have happened Lovely. perhaps with the um, the hobbits on the island of Floris as well, that they survived for you know, 100,000 years or so until um, modern humans arrived. Cool. Which So it's kind of a more consistent sort of evolutionary story in that sense. It doesn't say where they actually came from. It's possible that they evolved, say, from Homo erectus on, you know, in Asia, and that's where they, they came from. We haven't got enough samples from other places to, to determine that or not. And this is still the single only place that these um, fossils have been found. Yeah, 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 they've still only been found, yeah, on the island of Floris. Um, yeah. It would be nice to find other ones. You know, maybe like the, uh, say, the uh, the elephants that um, shrunk in size when they got on the island. Maybe these ones were, say, a Homo erectus that then yeah. evolved on this particular island. Maybe they, they only lived on this mm. island. Um, we don't know yet until we find sort of where they came from or find their ancestors. But at the moment, we kind of have a more coherent story that, yeah, it looks like um, the humans wiped them out, which is the... Oh, which is sort of devastating. The same old story we find everywhere. Yeah. That there's been a um, big technological release this week in the world of vehicles. Um, it is the unveiling of the new Tesla car, the Tesla Model 3. So hang on, Ooh. Tesla Model 3. Yeah. We mean there's been two other ones. There's been two other ones. So why ones. should we be excited about Tesla Model 3? Oh, why is this such a big deal? It is a big deal because I will tell you. It is the bringing of the electric car to the masses. But I'll just leave it there for the moment. Um, and yeah, first of all, you guys would have heard of, um, Tesla before, um, not just the physicist Tesla, but the, um, Elon Musk's company, Elon Musk's company. Yeah. So Elon Musk is a mega personality, entrepreneur, billionaire. He's the guy behind PayPal. Um, oh, okay. he sold PayPal for, he was the CEO of PayPal and then it got, um, taken over by eBay, they paid $1.4 billion for it, Jeez. turned him into like a multimillionaire overnight. And since then he's sort of just been, you know, he's also responsible for SpaceX and all this sort of stuff. He's he's pretty he's pretty out there. He's some sort of cartoon character. He's a little bit cartoon character-esque. Um, and I, I've sort of like, I can't put my finger on why his name is so strange. And then I realised it sort of sounds like um, an African deer. Like yeah, I thought like, the when, Elon Musk when sounds like a type it. of deer. You're right, you're right. Yeah, there's yeah. a Musk deer and there's the Eland. Yes, oh. antelope. Yeah, so mm. it's a t- it seems a bit deery. Maybe that's his spirit animal. I don't know. Okay, fine. Anyway, um, so yeah, as I as I said before, I'm not much into cars. Um, uh, in fact, I've only ever owned one car in my life, and it it's a very generic Mazda that was passed down through 
Um, generation to generation. Generation. <laughs> well, my two sisters owned it before I owned it. It's, okay. It's, it's not exactly the greatest car ever. Um, so, yeah, there, there being a new car ad isn't exactly something I would be into, um, especially, as you say, the third car um, that a company puts out. Why is it so special? Yeah. But a colleague of mine, Ollie, he came into work the other day and – um, I could see that there was this real spark in his eye. He was very excited. Um, and it, was long, it wasn't long before he revealed why he was so excited. And it was all because of this Tesla Model 3. Now, according to Mr. Elon Musk, the dear man, um, this isn't any old car release. It's, this is the car release that's going to change the world, right. according to him. I mean, he's the multi-million. He's the one who's selling it. He's the, he's one, the one who's selling, selling it. it. Yeah. Um, so obviously a grain of salt should be taken here. <laughs> um, so the reason for the hyperbole, the excitement, there's been, since since it's been released, there's been 200,000 people who've put their name down with pre-orders. Yeah. Um, I read something like $10 billion in pre-orders or something yeah, like that. just crazy amounts Jeez. of people going crazy for this car. Um so this is the car that's going to push electric cars into the mainstream. And the way that it's going to do that is it is the first Tesla car that is actually um, somewhat affordable for, mm. you know, middle-income earners. It's its going rate is $35,000. Oh. Um, so it's the cheapest Tesla car to ever go on the market. Do you know how much the other Tesla 1 and 2 were? Um, well, Tesla 1 was... Very expensive. Tesla 2 was a little bit more expensive. But oh. I'll, uh, so Elon Musk, the, the dear man, had a, had a strategy. And I'll talk about the strategy in a second. But first of all, I know you want to know about the statistics on the car. Because I had a lot of questions about this car. Um, how are they going to make it, you know, so cheap? Um, and is it going to be comparable to, um, to petrol cars, petrol equivalents on the road? Um, now the car has a lot of batteries. They're all lithium ion batteries, sort of like the ones that are in your computer, um, except they weigh close to 500 kilos. And there are more than a few of these that keep the Tesla three on the road. Um, one of the previous models of cars had to, had close to six and a half thousand batteries just to what? sort Jeez. of keep it on the road. Be heavy, I imagine. Uh, yeah, super heavy. Yeah, 500 kilos worth of batteries alone. Um, that's that's about as much as a pygmy elephant, really, into yeah. some batteries. <laughs> batteries. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it provides a lot more energy density than the pygmy elephant as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> six... Uh, Four, four to five times as much um, energy density than normal lithium-ion so, batteries. So there's a lot of energy that can be stored there. So are we saying that that um, like with previous cars, they measure their power in horsepower? We're going to measure them now in pygmy elephants. Is this <laughs> the, the future of automotion? revolution. Yeah, yeah, you heard it on Lost in Science first. Yeah. We are measuring the power of the electric car via extinct animals. I don't know how, how, how well that's well, going to sell. Petrol, but so. yeah. yeah. Uh, now, the car can drive for about 350 kilometres without recharging its that's large a good amounts distance, yeah. of, of batteries. Yeah, yeah which, which sounds like a quite, quite a way. You can mm. pretty much get all the way to the border to, um, 
to the top of Victoria if you live in Victoria. Yeah, and you want to escape. And you want to escape um, without having to stop at a recharge station. Then, uh, then you stop. <laughs> <laughs> Unless there's a, a recharge station in in Albury, you're, you're, yes. you're going to be stuffed. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a long night. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of how fast it goes, it boldly states that it can accelerate from zero to one hundred kilometers in under six seconds, um, which makes it super. Like a lot faster than my Don't Mazda. Don't even know what that means, but I was it imagining sounds good though, Superman. It? Vroom! <laughs> Except it doesn't go vroom because it's electric, so it just goes. And it's yeah, and it's super safe, so it has like a five star safety rating on on everything. Every everything that you can throw at it, it's just like no, nah, I got five stars on that. Apparently, according to Tesla, that is. And he know. And he know. <laughs> Um, yeah, but like you were saying, Manisha, what's really interesting, you were saying about the other cars, how, you know, how expensive they were. Um, yeah, what is really interesting is how Elon Musk has strategically planned how the company would release the cars. So initially they released this luxury car that was squarely aimed at the richest of the rich. And they only had to sell a few of these, um, at a really high price to yep. sort of make quite a lot of profit. And the profits from that then went into funding the next car, which was more of a sports car, which still had a huge price tag, but was a little bit more affordable for the rich, okay. not the richest of the rich. And then with the funds from that, they would then went into the development for this, um, for the for the Model 3, which is, okay. yeah, and the, the next electric one's car be a, for the layperson. The next one's going to be a bicycle. Or the price of a bicycle. Yeah. A car for the price of a bike. How lovely. How lovely. Yeah. Yeah. They could have just, just cut. I should be their business just planner, cut. manager person <laughs> and make tons of money. But I I think it's interesting that Tesla have gone about it this way. I mean, they could just be making sports cars and m- making the same amounts of profits as they would, but they're scaling up and, um, you know, Elon Musk obviously has this vision um to accelerate the transition to sustainable transport. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, that's that's pretty admirable, I think. Um, but it is a smart plan, though. Like, it's because mm. he's made it luxurious. And then if it's a luxurious thing to own this car, then... I oh, yeah, you've got the, the prestige, average, yeah. Well, like, then a middle-income earner can then own the car and it's luxurious because they've got a Tesla car. That's right. right. That's From, like, point. that branding yeah. point of view, yeah. it's like, so yeah. He's played yeah. it pretty smart. Yeah, yeah. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> not for the reason. <laughs> yeah, but from an environmental perspective, I, I mean, I guess um, an electric car is all well and good so long as you've got a carbon neutral electricity source. Yeah, so right? again, in Australia, you're in, in trouble. So in Australia, you're in trouble unless, um, yeah, so I hope we can see some sort of infrastructure around sort of solar panels to to, to mm. then that you can just sort of plug into Recharge your electric yeah, yeah. car or something like that rather than having to rely on, you know, our regular coal-fired power plants, which would just you know, yeah. completely yeah. defeat the purpose of having exactly. yeah. an environmentally sustainable car. You're listening.
listening to Lost in Science and as we said in the introduction, we are very happy to have Manisha back Woo-hoo. from the field. I'm back, people. Woo-hoo. From Woo-hoo. the science field. From the science field, from the world of science where you were doing a lot of experiments, you were doing your field work, you are doing getting up to all sorts of things. What I really want to know is what you were doing out there. What were you sciencing and how did it all go? Oh, um, so... Let's start with what you were sciencing. Um, so what was I sciencing? Uh, the last four months, I was trying to evaluate how bats, our little nocturnal mammally creaturey friends, yeah. how they respond to artificial nighttime lighting. So microbats or macrobats? Microbats. Okay, so, so they're the real little ones. The with little the guys, the little faces. forest bats, not the flying foxes that you might be thinking of, but the little guys that live in uh, small crevices and in trees and hollows and things like that. So the little guys, maybe you might have had them in your roofs. The little yeah. tiny guys. I had pink bats in the roof. Is that the same? No. <laughs> no. Different outcome. Okay, different outcome. Different outcome. Anyways, um, so I was looking at how they how they respond to lights. So like lights at night, how we have a lot of urban lighting, street lighting, um, and our skylines are all lit up and things like that. So looking at how these bats respond to those sorts of lights. Yeah. Right. So how far out of the city did you have to go and and what like what did you take with you to sort of set up the experiments? <laughs> like how how was it just you and a big truck or kind of, yep. I had um so out of the city, um we were about we weren't too far out of the city, about hundred and fifty kilometers out. And it um Basically what we took out there, so since I'm working with bats um, and they're really hard to monitor just because, you know, they're small and mm. often very dark colors and come out at nighttime. they come out at nighttime and yeah. we as humans are not all that great at seeing at light, nighttime without lights on. They move fast. Yeah. They move very quickly. And, and they they're move, so silent. They are quite silent. They, we can't hear what they're, they're uh, well, we can hear some of their calls, but for the most part, we can't hear as they're echolocating. So it makes it a bit difficult to monitor bats. So to do so, we use um, specialized equipment uh, called bat detectors, aptly yeah. named. Yeah. Um, and basically these... I think the same things are used um, in Gotham City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They run through the bat computer exactly, and yeah. do some <laughs> yeah, bat analysis. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's all very high tech and fancy and stuff. Yeah. But anyways, these bat detectors, they... Um, uh, they so what do they do? They 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 change the frequency of the the calls. No, the calls so when they're they're actually triggered by the ultrasonic noise. So any okay. sort of ultrasonic noise, they're triggered by it. But they're so they're programmed to pick up when there's a bat call and it records it as a sound file. Or okay. um, and then you can pull up those sound files on your computer, or you can see the call spectrum. So a spectrum oh. is basically um, like how the frequencies over time. And you can see basically the pattern of the calls that were made. And each species has a unique call or they're unique a enough. New, a unique sort of spectrum that you can yeah, see. Yeah, exactly. Right. So a different sort of pattern mm. in a different sort of frequency range. And they make different sorts of shapes as they're making their calls. And then so you can download your night's worth of detecting and then attribute or like um, attribute the calls to the species that would have made it okay right so you weren't actually collecting any bats you were mostly just yeah so i wasn't actually trapping the bats yeah yeah oh. 
I didn't trap any bats. I did just record their um, their calls. And the idea is that where a bat is more active, they'll there'll be more calls. So either they'll be echolocating a lot mm-hmm. more, or sometimes we can even pick up when they're feeding. So you can tell the difference between a echolocation call and a feeding buzz, and you can really pick up on what sort of behaviors they're what, doing there. What sort of things do they eat? They eat insects. They are amazing pest control whenever people ask me what (laughs) really though when people ask me why bats are important they eat like two-thirds or something of their body weight in mosquitoes Mosquitoes. and things like that i think in a night or in a course of a couple nights or something like that and it's just they're so good they're eating all your mosquitoes and moths and all sorts of dragonflies and all of that so all sorts of insects so they're they're, crickets uh, or is it just the cricket bats that eat them maybe (laughs) <laughs> oh jeez oh. right over my head <laughs> such a bad joke chris yeah, yeah yeah carry on so what while you were out there recording um these bats um did anything weird happen to you did you did any bats fly into your head or did you sort of like have any close encounters of the bat kind Ooh, of the bat kind uh or of any other kind. Mm. I saw a tiger snake for the first time in my ah. life, which is really cool. And I saw cool. I saw a other snake, but I'm not quite sure what it was as I saw it slithering <laughs> away from me into tall grass that I then did not proceed to go That's into. Wise. Yep. Yeah. Yep, especially after seeing a tiger snake. Yeah, so yeah. it was a bit uh I don't know if I was a bit scared or if I was just a bit stunned. Continued our work, just we're mm-hmm. mindful of the fact that there's a snake there and we were not going to approach it. Did you see much other wildlife? Yeah, we saw tons and tons of kangaroos and wallabies. I think wallabies are probably my favorite thing ever. They're so cute. <laughs> saw lots of um, blue tongue lizards. Mm-hmm. Saw saw tree frogs and a lot of uh, a lot of insects. Tons and tons of insects. Yeah. Okay. Um, echidnas. Saw yeah. a lot of really really cool Australian wildlife. And for those of you that may have forgotten, I'm from Canada, so seeing all of that sort of thing nice up and close, it's really really interesting. Yeah. yeah. Were there many of you out there? So I worked with one other assistant. Um, mainly it was the same assistant throughout the uh, throughout the field season, but I often had um, other undergraduate volunteers with me and Mm -hmm. then over the course over two weeks once in December and once in January I had eight high school students helping me out there oh what fun yeah so it was with in conjunction with um earth watch um the earth watch earth watch institute and fantastic yeah it was one of their um student expeditions and it was just had a lot of fun with the students I was actually with uh both like one both of my snake account encounters happened with either one group or the other. So I blame the kids. <laughs> I would too. As you do. Um, and did your, did your experimental design and how you were sort of recording the bat calls change over the couple of months? So um, it didn't really change. I was um, pretty standard with how I did my work. But the cool thing was that we went into... Uh, habitat or areas that we knew that there was a lot of bad activity and we installed lights. So for the actual experiment, we did kind of like a before, during and after. And in the Mm. before phase, we just kind of got a baseline of how much activity was in the area. We installed lights and we had them on during the during phase. And then we turned the lights off after um, and try to monitor and see how long it might take for the activity to return to, um, to baseline levels. 
this is and this is all around roadways and like freeways. And yeah, stuff, isn't exactly. It? Yeah. Yep. So um, the overall theme of my um, of my PhD is to evaluate how roads impact bat activity and with roads we have street lighting which is where mm, mm. this um work comes into play and the areas that i was doing this work is um out in the bush so normally quite quite dark at night so it's not it's not an, an already lit area so it was actually quite interesting to see how like the the lights just looked really cool at night and you can see them from from the roadways and things like that it was just really cool and really interesting nice Okay, so I assume that you now you have a lot of data from all this and that what, what's a, what are you going to do with this data? What's the next phase of the research? Oh, so, well, yeah, I've just, I've collected a whole heap of data and um, now we've got to analyze it. So um, the first thing I'll do is assign the species the same way I mentioned before. And then after that, we'll do some analyses and figure out what the bats are doing and if the, if the lights have any influence on their behavior. Fantastic. Well, you can come back and tell us, well, come back as much as you want, but you come back and tell us again <laughs> when, um, when your paper's published and, and you've got some, some good results. Yeah, I definitely will. Awesome. Okay, that is it for this episode of Lost in Science. We've learned about bats. We've learned about electric cars. Yeah. There's electric dreams. And we've learned about hobbits. <laughs> Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia's community radio network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. Please email us at lostinsci at gmail.com and tell us about your favourite species of bat. You can you can tell us that, or you can just um, you can just listen to us on the on Facebook. Or no, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can download our podcast, or you can listen to us on the radio next week when Claire, Manisha, Stu, and Chris will get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.